present to you uh, a book of the month, um, which I read over the Christmas New Year period, Spurgeon's Sorrows. This is just a fantastic book. Um, Zach Eswine read through all of Spurgeon's sermons, and um, he gleaned out all the times that he spoke of his depression. And Spurgeon, uh, often known for his great mirth in his preaching, suffered terrible depression. And he's pulled together um, all the things that Spurgeon has said. And from his own biblical reflections as well, Zach's put this really helpful book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, A Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. Now, we have 30 copies today. My guess is that actually lots of people will want this book. And so if you don't, if the book's all gone by the time you've gone there, please let the bookstall know and we'll get some more for next week. Only five pounds I found it personally very helpful to reflect on this. And, I, I, and maybe you struggle with depression. Maybe you have friends who struggle with depression. Uh, that would be a great book to get hold of today. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, you are such a generous God. Help us to see it, to worship you, to align our lives under your word. Uh, Father, set us free from false thinking. Help us to live in the freedom of the gospel that we may be like you, generous. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Christians have a love-hate relationship with money. We we enjoy having money. We enjoy the opportunity that it gives us to to go places and enjoy things. And yet we also sort of have a problem with it as well. There's kind of a weird phenomenon, I don't know if you've noticed this, but however much you have, we always feel that a little bit more would just help us out. We struggle with that pull of materialism. After the shine of having bought something wears off, uh, we quickly become dissatisfied and are kind of aware of the new thing, the, the next thing that's even better that we could get. Uh, you know, whether that's, you know, Cars, kitchen appliances, gadgets, clothes, holiday options. You know, there's always that next thing. Uh, Someone's told me who love bicycles that the the, the amount of bicycles a a bicyclist needs are N plus one. The one you've got and the other one you'd like to get. We struggle with that pull and money just seems to slip through our fingers. I mean, the salary appeared in December And it went very quickly in December, didn't it? And we're all trying to work out how to make things stretch till the checks come through in January and February. It's it's incredible how quickly it disappears. And there's that constant temptation to live beyond your means, to, uh, to buy things on credit and to go into greater debt. So we struggle with this materialism and greed, really. Uh, We recognize that we should not love money, and yet we feel uneasy about the amount of money we actually have got. And throughout Christian history, uh, there's been a variety of responses to money and wealth. In recent decades, we've had the rise of the so-called prosperity gospel. And there are preachers out there who rejoice that they own two Rolls Royces and, and purchase personal jets for their ministry. Because they see money as God's blessing on the godly person. And in this view, your bank account is kind of like a a barometer of how spiritual you are. The more money you have, the more godly you are. Uh, Creflo Dollar, 
a U.S. prosperity preacher who visited Edinburgh last year, did post uh, in a now-deleted tweet, Jesus bled and died for us so that we can lay claim to the promise of financial prosperity. Hashtag prosperity in Christ, hashtag wealthy living, hashtag abundant life. Well, that did kick up a storm and they did delete it. And according to prosperity preachers, God longs to make us materially rich. And so really the, 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 the only thing that holds us back is our sin and our lack of faith from becoming fabulously wealthy. Other Christians have gone in the opposite direction. Money is seen as inherently corrupting and damaging to our relationship with God. And so if you want a fuller and deeper relationship with God, then you need to kind of learn to live uh, with as little money as possible. Get rid of as much as you can. And the vow of poverty is at the heart of certain religious orders like the Franciscans, for example. Now my guess is that today, uh, there are very few of us here who find either view particularly that appealing. And if you want to take the Bible out of context, you'll find a grain of truth uh, behind either sides of this position. So what should our response be as Christians to money and wealth? Should we despise it and renounce it? Or should we be thankful for it and get as much of it as possible? How much of our money should we give away? And who should we give it to? What does God want us to do with the money that we keep ourselves? Now that's, these are some of the topics that we're going to cover over five sermon series. And we're going to look at this over the next five months. Just, uh, we're, we're not doing it week after week, but we're going to do one every month practically. We're going to see what the Bible has to say about this very significant topic. And I hope this series will, will help us get clearer and, and purposeful as we think about our money. Now, if this is your first time in this church for a very long time, uh, there's a danger that this Sunday will confirm all your worst fears. I knew it! All they do is talk about money. I mean, I, I think I've shared in the pulpit before my good friend Marco in the chip shop. What was the first thing he said to me when he heard I was a minister? Hey, you still doing that passing the plate thing? That was his first question. But I want you to know that this is a subject that we don't often talk about here at Charlotte Chapel. In fact, the last time we had a sermon series on this was in 2011, seven years ago. Um, so it's your lucky Sunday if you came today. So do come back next Sunday. We'll be returning to our series where we're working through the New Testament book of the Hebrews. And if you are visiting us today, then please know that you're our guest. Uh, you're very welcome to enjoy our Sunday at no cost to yourself. Because our members do cheerfully give to pay the bills to enable the, the building to be open and, and there to be heat and light and pastors and the like. So firstly this morning, what is money and what does God think about it? I've had a very interesting week trying to understand what money is. And it's a lot more complex than you think. I mean, as a kid, you think it's very simple, don't you? It, it's, it's the money in your pocket that enables you to go to the sweet shop and buy sweets. It's very straightforward. 
But the truth is, if we all went to our banks at the same time and asked for all our money in cash, the economy would go bust. We live in a bit of a mythic sense of what our wealth is and what our money is. These numbers in the accounts. The banking system would collapse if we all asked for a tangible form of our money at once. I enjoyed listening to talks from the Jubilee Center uh, the, on the website. It was given last December on their publication of a report, Crumbling Foundations, a Biblical Critique of Modern Money. And some top economists who are Christians had some very interesting reflections on where our economy is at right now. So you, you might enjoy that if you like that sort of thing. But what is money? Well, put simply, money is a measure of account. You know, we could measure things about how they compare to carrots, but we've chosen in Britain to measure them according to the pound. And money's a unit of exchange. We could, we, could, we, could, we could barter for things. Say, I grow carrots and you grow potatoes and I want some potatoes, you want some of my carrots. We could come to negotiation. How many carrots for, for how many potatoes? But actually, that makes life quite complex, doesn't it? And money makes it much more simple to exchange goods and services. Uh, Tony Payne, in his Matthias Bible study, Cash Values, and I've taken a lot of the shape of this series from this uh, little study, he describes it as a tangible form of power. Uh, money has this stored ability to do things. It means you could walk across the road and get someone else to cook you a meal, uh, to serve it to you, and take the dirty dishes away at the end and wash them up for you. That's what money can do. It has the power to transfer things from your ownership to mine. It has the power for us to live in, in a certain place and to live at a certain standard. And because money represents this potential to do or to own things, money's become this measure of, of wealth. How much money does somebody earn or have is often used as a measure of their personal wealth. Now, the, the truth is, it's a very limited way of understanding wealth, but we'll put that aside for a moment. In other societies, uh, or, or in times past, it, it, it's more about concrete things. How much gold did you have? How, much, how many sheep or cattle do you own? So I'm reading through the book of Genesis at the moment. And I read in Genesis 13 about Abraham that he'd become very wealthy in livestock, in silver, and in gold. That was the measure of wealth. So did God approve of Abraham's great wealth? What does God think about money in general? Now, to answer these questions, we need to go back to the very beginning and think about creation. Some believe in the atheistic fairy tale that suddenly from nothing, the whole universe came into being for no purpose whatsoever. I find that very far-fetched myself. But the Bible more credibly tells us that an almighty eternal and personal God created the whole universe out of nothing. Now, there's still a lot of mystery in this. Uh, we struggle to comprehend a God who is eternal and who can merely speak and things come into existence and they come into a separate existence from him. We struggle to wrap our heads around the idea that uh, we can exercise free wills and distinct decisions while at the same time being totally dependent on God. And yet this is what the Bible teaches us. But what the Bible is crystal clear about is that because he created the whole universe, all of it belongs to him. 
So Psalm 24, if we can put that up, declares this. Next slide. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The creator has the right of ownership over all that he's made, including all the creatures who inhabit the earth. So consider how wealthy God is. All of creation belongs to him. He does not lack. He does not need us for anything. Uh, Psalm 50 says this, I have no need of a bull from your store or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Even the insects. It's estimated there are 10 quintennial insects in the world, which is lots, and he owns every one, and all the, the cattle on a thousand hills. And God not only creates the world, but he's the one who sustains it. Psalm 104 puts it this way. How many are your works, Lord, your works? In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there, all creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. You see, the, the God who creates is the God who still sustains. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. We as creatures are fully dependent on this creator. His spirit creates life and renews the creation. Uh, there's no life without God's sustaining activity. And when God chooses to take our breath away, we return to the dust. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, reminds his disciples, Adam prayed it in his prayer today, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside the Father's care. And that he knows even the, the numbers of hair on our heads. And so Jesus says to his disciples, don't, don't be afraid. He knows how to take care of you. And he has that level of detail and concern for his creation. He is the creator. He is the owner. He is the sustainer. And that obviously includes money and wealth. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And Job 40 one, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Have you ever considered how fabulously wealthy God is? God is fabulously wealthy. 
everything we consider as wealth, uh, everything we consider as valuable, ultimately belongs to him. Land, sea, gold, silver, animals, us. And have you considered to the great generosity of this God in the way that he shares all his good creation with us? Genesis chapter 1 outlines our unique privileges as human beings and our duties to our creator. So in Genesis chapter 1, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We are created in the image of God to be rulers over his creation. He put our original parents in a gorgeous, well-watered, lush garden to carefully work it. And he allows them to enjoy all the benefits and blessings of being in this beautiful garden. They can eat from all but one tree in, in the whole of the garden. And he blessed them so they'd be fruitful, making a lot more little gardeners. And, uh, and farmers to fill the earth and order it and enhance it, to enjoy it and to work it, to be stewards uh, over his fish and his birds and his animals. Now what great generosity God has shown us. What innumerable blessings each of us have enjoyed in our lives that God has just entrusted to us, given to us, to enjoy in his creation. Uh, we read from Psalm 8 before I preached. And uh, this is the praise of King David, isn't it? He's utterly amazed at the unique place that God has given humanity. You crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, when you understand what God has done, this is the response, thanksgiving, praise, worship, delight in this awesome, generous God. Uh, on my sabbatical last year, Sharon and I spent a month in Sydney, and a couple of weeks we stayed in a beautiful part of Sydney on the North Shore. Uh, it's, it's called Mossman, and uh, there's a man I know, and he very kindly let us use his house solely. He wasn't around uh, in, in Mossman, and it's just two minutes' walk from the most beautiful beach on the Northern Shore, Balmoral Beach. I, I, there's no way I could afford to stay in a place like this. It was, I mean, it was, the beach is beautiful. It was May time, but still around the middle of the day, we could go down to the beach and go for a swim, and it was fantastic. Blue sky, sun was shining, and uh, it was a beautiful house. It had a marvelous little coffee machine. You pressed a button. It ground the beans so it was fresh. It made a delicious cup of coffee every single time. Just keep pushing that button, baby. That's how I started the day. 
It was amazing. It was so beautiful. And we enjoyed it immensely, but we enjoyed it carefully. It wasn't our house. See, he entrusted us the codes so we could gain access into the house. But when we went in there, it wasn't our job to say, well, we don't like the way he's decorated. We think red walls would be lovely. It wasn't our job to decide, actually, let's knock down this wall and make this a bigger space. That was not our prerogative. It was not our house. He said, look, I'm happy for you to use it. Just make sure the bins go out. That's all we had to do for great coffee and a wonderful beach. Of course, we put the bins out. Hopefully, he'll let us do it again sometime. Do you know what I mean? If we'd forgotten the bins, you'd be oh, it's a small thing. Well, this is the point. God has made us stewards of his resources in his world. Everything we have is merely ours to look after for God. Uh, there's a very expensive uh, watchmaker. I'm, I'm not sure whether you've seen this advert. I won't mention the brand because I can't pronounce the name of it. But um, the advert goes something like this. You never actually own this watch. You merely look after it for the next generation. Well, this is what the Bible would tell us. We don't actually own anything in this creation. We're merely looking after it for God and, and we'll have to pass it on. We're stewards who will have to give an account. The Blue Planet series was stunning, wasn't it? But David Attenborough did get preachy. And he showed us the impact of plastic in the oceans. And there was an awful bit about some bird feeding another bird a regurgitated plastic bag. And it's horrible. And, uh, you know... As stewards of God's creation, we should care about that. And, 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 and this living with environmental concern is a good and godly thing to do. We should be concerned that we pass on the world better than we found it, rather than more messed up, more abused. But even more profoundly than this, we are called to live our lives with this attitude of thanksgiving to God, enjoying all that he has made in a way that glorifies him. That doesn't forget that, that he is God, not the stuff that he created. That's not God. And our fundamental problems come when we forget who is God. And we live for the creation rather than the creator. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says this, For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. The context is that he's warning this little Christian church about false teachers coming and telling them that if they wanted to be really spiritual, uh, then they should avoid getting married and they should avoid certain foods. But the Apostle Paul, uh, from his understanding of the goodness of God, and the fact that he created all things causes the teaching of demons. And you see, those in Christian history who have viewed money and wealth as intrinsically evil have made a serious blunder. Everything God has made, when used according to God's word and received with thanksgiving, can be viewed as holy, good, 
and pleasing. It has come from God's hand. And here's a great question to ask if we're Christians today. Can you thank God wholeheartedly for this thing that you're about to do? The great test. But the Bible does also critique those who simplistically just talk lots about wealth and how God will shower it on his faithful people. Because if you turn over the page to 1 Timothy chapter 6, you get this command. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, there are great dangers uh, with wealth, and, and, the, and the danger is that we can so easily become arrogant. We can so easily become proud, thinking that actually because we've got money and others don't, we're better than other people. Or thinking, well, we can be self-sufficient. I, I can rely on my bank account. I can rely on my resources rather than relying on God. I don't need God. I don't need other people. It, it's got a terrible temptation for us to become arrogant and proud. But it's so foolish to put our trust and hope in wealth. It's so unwise to do it in this life because actually it can disappear in a moment. Click on that scammer email and put in your bank account. See how quickly it'll disappear. Our property can devalue. Our business can go under. Our hope for uh, sales never materialize and debts can mount up. And it's so utterly, to, utterly foolish to trust in our wealth when it comes to the life to come and our relationship with God. Money cannot save us from death. It cannot save us from the judgment of God. And how scary to stand before the actual God who made us when we've lived our whole life worshipping other things as God in his place. How embarrassing, how scary to stand before the holy living God if that's how we've lived our lives, completely ignoring him, taking all the goodies but never saying thank you, never caring how he calls us to live for him. Now I wonder, would you regard yourself as rich this morning? When, we, when I read that verse, command those who are rich in this present world, were you thinking, I hope the rich people in this room are listening to that? Well, compared to maybe in the UK, you can always think of people who are wealthier than us. But you know, in global terms, we are amongst the very wealthiest in the world, all of us. Uh, the average salary in Scotland in 2017 was 28,354. And if you earn that average salary, according to the global rich list, that puts you into the top 1% of the richest people in the world by income. Isn't that extraordinary? Pretty much most of us in the room are in the richest 1% of the world. God has been very kind to us. How blessed we are if we've grown up in this wealthy nation of Britain, a large economy. How many blessings we've received. And God's made us stewards of his great resources. He's been so generous to us. He's rich and generous and he's showered his, his blessings on us. And he's called us to be stewards of his stuff. 
You know, we know that from creation, but, you know, as people who've come to put our trust in Jesus, we know this from redemption and salvation. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. We, you know, from creation he's been so generous. From salvation, it is grace upon grace that he's shown to idolaters, rebel sinners. How kind he's been to us. And as this series goes on, we're going to learn more about how he wants us to use his resources. How to avoid misusing them. So let me know if you've got particular questions you'd like me to to attempt to answer over this series. Let's just close now with a time of thanksgiving. Almighty God, our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for all the many blessings that we've enjoyed today. Lord, most of us have had food to eat, clothes to wear, We've come from warm places. Uh, Lord, you have been so kind to us. Lord, you've blessed us with a church family. You've blessed us with a king and savior in Jesus who made himself poor to make us rich, people who can be forgiven and right with you, people adopted into your very family. Lord, you have sustained our lives up to this day, and we want to say thank you. Thank you for every way we see your tangible goodness in our lives. Thank you for all the rich things that we enjoy, that we delight in. And Lord, we ask that you'd give us this biblical wisdom that we would use our money in such a way that we would not set our hope on it in the uncertainty of riches, but always have our hope steadfastly in you. Grow us, Lord, to be people of thanksgiving and appreciation of all your goodness, and grow us to be generous like you. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.